Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to spice up your bedroom is even better. Select almost any one item from adamandeve.com, punch in the offer code TMPP before checkout, and get 50% off. Then, Adam and Eve loads on the free. A bounty of free things. Gifts. It's like Christmas for your genitals. Enter offer code TMPP at checkout, that's TMPP as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, and you will get 10 tantalizing free gifts. A sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. And six free spicy movies. And that's what we're all about here on the Thousand Movie Project Podcast, cinema. So again, that's 50% off of just about any item on the site, plus free shipping. So go to adamandeve.com today and enter the code TMPP with your order. That's TMPP, T-M-P-P, at adamandeve.com. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I'm a little sick, and my voice is extra deep because I'm recording this first thing on Christmas morning. I tried to record... I wanted desperately to get this episode out on Christmas Day. I spent two months on the script for this episode. Not, like, working actively, obsessively every day on it for two months, but writing it, doing a draft, leaving it alone for a little bit, doing another draft, tinkering with it, adding things. And I was thinking all along that I would get it out before... Christmas, but then it started looking like that was impossible. The likelihood of my getting this episode out on Christmas Day is very slim, but I'm going to give it a shot because today's episode is largely about the things that we make and push out into the world and the things that we consume that others have made. And one of the narrative sidecars that I'll be asking you to sit in while I explore this this corner of my navel is the story of a literary critic, a guy named Harold Bloom. Harold Bloom died in October at the age of 89. He was wildly prolific, and I haven't tallied up the pages, I don't imagine anyone has, but I think it's safe to say that he wrote mostly in his career about Shakespeare and the American literary canon. And lots of critics do this, of course. There's nothing inherently fascinating about his having done that, but Bloom was anomalous among critics because apart from being more readable than most of his peers, academics who, as as my friend Steve Donahue puts it, write about shit like the phenomenological phenomenology of phenomena, Harold Bloom was mainly distinct for the fact that he had a photographic memory. And yes, every time I use the word photographic memory, someone comes up and starts molesting my calm by saying, I don't think that's not what it's called. I know that's not the right word, but it's the word that we all use and you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Bloom claimed that at the height of his readerly powers, he could read a thousand pages an hour. Bloom felt strongly that reading a great text wasn't nearly so important as rereading it, which of course means spending lots and lots of time with it. And because we only have so many years on this earth, four score and ten years, as Bloom liked to say, it was his perfectly sensible conviction that we everyday readers have got to be very selective about what we choose to read. And so Bloom was very serious about shaping and preserving the American literary canon. And you get the vibe, because he was very clear about this in interviews, that Bloom probably would not have been thrilled to think that any of us are reading at any moment like erotica or potboiler detective fiction, uh, Stephen King. He, these things he thought were devoid of artistic merit and therefore frivolous. And so I'm, I'm not totally in bed with Harold Bloom when it comes to, to who and what he deemed to be worthwhile for reading, but I find the guy very interesting nonetheless. As the tides of academia began to shift, 
and to look toward broadening the canon and diversifying it for the inclusion of different voices, Bloom referred to diversity advocates as the School of Resentment, capital S, capital R. He characterized those critics as being petty and willfully naive, and he, would, and he said that, for them, the only thing a poet needed in order to be taken seriously was, quote, to be serving a life sentence in a Michigan penitentiary. Bloom was a problematic guy, but I do think that he was a genius in his field, and I respect his talents and his commitment to the work of letters. I could talk about him for a long time, but the point, what Bloom's death and my subsequent binging of all his interviews has gotten me thinking about in a, in a pointed way recently is is just time. Time as it pertains to our consumption of art and and how we give that precious you know, little time to, to certain pieces of art, certain artists, trusting that we will somehow be rewarded for that investment. And sometimes the art to which we divert so much of our time is our own. And so I'm thinking too about the fact that when we choose to work on one project, we're choosing not to work on another, and maybe condemning ourselves to the internal haunting company of a, the ghost of the unmade thing. And when I think, for instance, about Thousand Movie Project and all the thousands of hours I've already invested in it, my stomach kind of shrivels and twists. I mean, most likely, if not for Thousand Movie Project, I would just be, I would have spent these past three years just scribbling a long succession of unpublishable novels and, and touching my penis. My friend R.C. is a musician who performs under the name Speakeasy, and I'm proud to say that the music that opens and closes this podcast, and the tunes that you'll be hearing in various segments today, they all come from Speakeasy's catalog, which you can find on www.speakeasy.com, where in the second S is a number five, as well as on YouTube. The way that I first got well acquainted with uh, R.C.'s music is that we'd been friends since high High school, and then a few years ago, when we were fresh out of college, I wanted to take a stab at doing like a conventional long-form journalistic profile of an artist, and so I figured that RC would be a great subject, and so we hung out for a, for a whole day. He was doing a photo shoot in Wynwood, and so I tagged along with him, and then we talked the whole time, and then we got beer and wings at a smoky dive bar across from FIU called New Wave. And then after a few more meetings for drinks, I wrote a 10-page piece about Speakeasy and his work for my first website. And the piece focused mainly on, apart from R.C.'s, you know, aesthetics, his convictions, it was about this huge concept album that he was working on at the time called Circles. The album was going to be his debut following an EP that he'd re released earlier, and it had a lot to do with astronomy and politics and feminism and race. It was very ambitious and very personal. It, it, was, and it was one of the most interesting things that any of my artist friends was working on. At the time of the interview, Speakeasy had been working on his debut album for a couple of years already, and one of the things that we were bonding over um, while meeting up night after night at the Pinecrest Alehouse to, so that I could take more notes about, about his work is the fact that I, too, at the same time, had been working on something for about three years. It was my, my first novel, and I was about to finish it. R.C. too was feeling like Circles was nearing its own completion. That was back in 2014, about five years ago. He just finished it. I think Shakespeare's vocabulary is, if I remember properly, something like 23,000 words, which is in itself an outrage, because no other author uh, from antiquity to the present day has such a vocabulary. Um, the shocking thing about that vocabulary is that half of the words are used only once. And we're, I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about connectives and right. but for and right. so on. But of words, qua words, uh, half are used only once, as if to say, having found the perfect or appropriate context uh, for the word, he chose uh, to use it again.
In my sophomore year of high school, a new class was added to the catalog. It was called World Religions and Cultures. The teacher was a recently retired minister named Mr. Peoples. He was soft-spoken and tall, and you could tell that he was more accustomed to addressing big roomfuls of mannered, middle-class, deferential worshippers than he was a roomful of teenagers. And you could tell this right away, on day one, because he began the very first class with a PowerPoint presentation titled, A Little Bit About Me. And I remember he had big blue eyes, and he wore a necktie with his short-sleeved dress shirts, and he was always smiling in the most innocent, aloof, friendly way. As a new teacher with, with a ton of life experience and wisdom behind him, you could tell that he was looking forward to counseling some wayward teens through their spiritual crises. His teeth were big, and they fanned outward slightly. They were all spaced far enough apart that you figured he probably didn't need to floss very often. But so it's the first day of class, and he's going through the, this PowerPoint, and he's showing us photos first of his old congregation, which was vast and mostly white, and outfitted mainly in pastel colors over khaki slacks. And then there are photos of his family, his wife, his siblings, his nieces and nephews, and his children. And most of his children were grown, and you could see that some of them even had some apparently newborn kids of their own. Father Peebles' kids look totally average and innocent, and you wouldn't think of any obvious angle from which to joke about them, except maybe their, their consummate whiteness. But also, there was the fact there was the fact that there was 11 of them. People starts going through these individual photos of his legion of children until some anonymous voice somewhere in the back of the room pipes up, Looks like you love to fuck your wife, father. Which is true, and I'm, I'm glad I wasn't the one to point it out, but my fr I remember my first girlfriend was the youngest of 11 children, and it was just so... Everything about the family dynamic just had to bend to accommodate the enormity of the family. It was so weird. Um, I, just, I think it's insane to have 11 children, especially if you're not rich. There's a Marx Brothers movie, of, I, th oh, I think it's the one about the big, st I think it's the big store, where Groucho Marx is, he's, he's encountering some guy who has like 11 kids, and the dude says, what can I say, I love my wife, and Groucho says, well, I, I love my cigar, but I take it out of my mouth once in a while. Anyway, so Father Peebles of the Potent Seed is showing us his Genghis Khan-like bevy of offspring, and somebody makes a joke about how Peebles can't stop fucking his wife, and snickering ensues across the class. And the vibe in the room has a palpable air of shifting power. And as I learned from my two years as a substitute teacher at that same high school, this would have been the moment for setting a precedent that would have lasted the rest of the school year. If Peebles had just responded with some shrugging remark about like, yeah, obviously I like fucking my wife, why would I have, why would I have married her if I didn't? Or if he had maybe quipped something back about like the obvious virginity of whichever 16-year-old smartass said that, he could have saved himself a lot of trouble. But Father Peebles, a practiced man of God, was unaccustomed to such outbursts. He didn't know how to handle them. So he said nothing and he went on with the PowerPoint. The next slide showed a photo of Father Peebles wearing shorts and a luminous blue helmet waving at the camera from his bicycle on a sunny afternoon. And he says to the class, In my spare time, I enjoy riding my bike around the neighborhood. To which somebody in the class remarks, Always riding something, aren't you, Father? And again, this is just from an ocean of sort of huddled teenage heads, and uh, he can't tell who's saying it. And so Mr. Peebles, not sure what to do here, says, quote, uh, and then he clicks to the next slide with this nervous blink and like a little less pep in his voice. So now here on the screen, he's got a picture of himself in front of the movie theater at Sunset Place and he clears his throat and he says, I also enjoy going to the movies. Whereupon a, a voice in the corner of the room, slightly less imaginative, says, uh, oh, we know what kinds of movies you like, father. 
Father Peebles had been a minister for about 30 years before deciding that it was time to answer a different calling, sharing his wisdom with high schoolers, whom he probably considered to be the most spiritually bereft demographic in America. And maybe he was right, but it was clear during his lectures, especially those concerning Christianity in the West, that apart from being comprehensively versed in the religious texts of the world, Father Peebles was savvy, sensitive, and attuned to the nuances of a spiritual life, the speed bumps and the serious issues that come along with trying to live a, a good modern life in harmony with the moral teachings of a book that's 2,000 years old. And he would say some insightful things. But Father Peebles was also hopelessly fucking kooky, like saying shit like whoopsie daisies and, and golly gee with a straight face and no irony. And that kookiness undermined whatever intellectual or spiritual authority he might have commanded at like a Sunday morning pulpit in, in the 30-odd years of his previous career, when he was standing bef each week before a crowd of like-minded adults who, who never, you know, spent their days not getting intellectual stimulation or spiritual stimulation. And so they probably flocked to Father Peebles' sermons with a degree of like personal vested interest. And so, as a result of 30 years of this, Father Peebles had the air of a guy who really did value and practice a serious, soft-spoken textbook Christian humility, but who was also clearly accustomed to being respected. But it was just so fucking hard to take him seriously. There's this one day in class where a, a young woman in the front row was eating dry Fruit Loops out of a Ziploc bag, one at a time, and then, in the middle of Peebles' lecture, she dropped one on the floor. Father Peebles stopped mid-sentence, traversed the entire classroom in two long strides, crouched, snatched the Fruit Loop off the floor with the agility of a much younger man, sprang to his feet, and then, throwing a triumphant fist into the air, he popped the Fruit Loop into his mouth and shouted, Five Second Rule! Everybody in the room went silent and just looked at him, agog, like, Aren't you a man of God? Why are you eating Fruit Loops off the floor? In the space of literally two seconds, he had gone from evangelizing at the podium to diving after a Fruit Loop. He looked like Renfield. Just kooky shit, man. So people walked all over him, and toward the halfway point of the year, we, we could see him manifesting some passive aggression towards us that I think came as a surprise even to himself when these remarks would slip out of his mouth. Because people would fuck with him all week, and the indignities would just accumulate. And then somebody would ask on a Friday, at the end of a week of indignation, um, someone would ask an innocuous question. Like, hey, what page is the homework? And he'd be like, what are you, fucking stupid? <laughs> like, obviously, he wouldn't say fuck, but the fuck was there between the lines. And then after he had this outburst, the class would go totally quiet. And then, and then Peebles would go quiet. And like he would touch his face as if to confirm that he was awake <laughs> and that he'd actually said this. And then he would just be like, everyone, everyone, everyone just read for the rest of the period. And then he would go sulking back to his desk and he would shuffle papers around and pretend to be busy until the bell rang. And then at that point, he would ask the offended student to stay behind so that he could he could navigate some pseudo apology. Mr. Peoples came back from the winter break that year with a noticeable hardening in his demeanor. Like many an inquisitor before him, Father Peoples found that the best way to disseminate God's word was through punishment. And so his assignments, just like his uxorious Christian lust for his poor wife, grew longer and harder. His comments in the margins of our essays became curt. They were less encouraging and more critical. By the following year, I heard that he had become a veritable hard-ass, writing people up left and right, failing people without according them his standard allotment of a second and fourth and seventh chance. So what's my point with the Peebles story? Well, here's a guy who spent 30 years studying, 
practicing and preaching a certain doctrine, a way of life, and he had mastered his subject. And then, turning a new leaf in his 60s, he decided to share the riches of his expertise, of his wisdom and knowledge, with a bunch of young people. And why? Why this sudden huge change? He was in his 60s, so it's kind of late for a midlife crisis. Maybe with social security looming, he was starting to think about the future, about maybe etching his humble Christian legacy into the hearts and minds of children, just as young lovers scrawl their star-crossed initials into tree bark. When J.K. Rowling finished writing the Harry Potter series, she went on to write a social novel called The, the Casual Vacancy. It was a book that, the way it was marketed, was finally a book for adults from the author of Harry Potter. And when she went to promote it on the Charlie Rose show, Rose asked her why, in this adult novel with adult subjects like poverty and addiction and class struggle, why did she again have a 16-year-old protagonist? Didn't she just get finished writing about teens? Uh, wouldn't adult characters be better vehicles for communicating whatever it is she wanted to say about these particular subjects? And Rowling said in response that she chose to work with a 16-year-old protagonist because teenagers are more open to exploring big, abstract ideas about like morality and society and culture and the universe than their adult counterparts. Which she isn't saying is like a knock against adults. It's, it's, it's not that she's saying people all become more narrow-minded as they get older. It's just that swamped as we adults are with bills and jobs and kids of our own, we are less likely as adults to sit with our friends on a park bench totally sober and ponder the infinities in like an earnest way. But teenagers do that kind of shit, and as such, these philosophical and very forthcoming teenagers become useful vehicles for a novelist who's trying to explore heavy ideas at great length, and to ask earnestly about what it means to be a good person or a good citizen or something like that. And I figured that maybe Father Peebles was thinking something similar when he made that professional leap of faith, as it were, from the church to the classroom. Maybe he thought that he would shift the focus of his abilities from the adults in his congregation, who could conceivably fend for themselves, and toward helping, instead, the earnest and open-minded teenagers of Miami-Dade County, helping them to maybe cultivate a, like a sturdy philosophical spiritual foundation on which to build their adult identity. Father Peebles, I have no doubt, had the best of intentions when he made this switch. He had the skill set, he had the experience, he was a good candidate for this, and yet... He was mocked for even trying. He was changed for having tried it. It seemed that there was something about this experience that hardened his actual attitude toward the human race. And I guess what I'm snagging my toe on is this idea of a guy cultivating a skill set for a really long time, giving the entirety of himself over to a certain project or a certain goal, and then falling short of it. Or, what's an even stranger alternative, is being so changed by the whole adventure, by the whole endeavor, that before you've even reached your goal, your experiences in pursuing it have, have made you into a new person who no longer even values the goal, the thing that you set out to do. I don't know if this is making sense, but the idea that like the journey toward your destination is what convinces you that the destination is worthless. Like Leonard Cohen used to say that he could never tell if a song was worth writing until he wasted two months writing it. And I wonder, like, how many things are like this? How often is it the case that you kind of do have to marry this person in order to know that things won't work out and to get the relationship out of your system so that you don't have to live with what if? How often is it the case that you have to go through the entirety of law school before realizing and knowing for sure that you don't want to be a lawyer? Leonard Cohen's posthumous album, Thanks for the Dance, features a one-minute track called The Goal, which is as gorgeous as anything he's ever done. And he closes it by saying, and he's recording this from his deathbed, that finally, 
as the curtain draws, he finds that there's, quote, no one to follow and nothing to teach, except that the goal falls short of the reach. love Emerson because in 64, and when a year later in the middle of the journey at 35, I fell into the deepest depression of my life. I read and read and read Emerson morning, noon, and night, and all night long, and I read all through the journals, and I felt that every phrase he had ever written, he was speaking directly to me, and he'd written it for me. And I still feel that way. Because think of that magnificent sentence early on in that extraordinary Rhapsody self-reliance. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us shining with a certain alienated majesty. Isn't that wonderful? It's fantastic. And my own definition of reading, which I take straight out of Emerson, even though this is not his wording, what reading really is, is coming upon it, recognizing it, and taking back what is already your own. Martin Scorsese has a new movie out called The Irishman. It's a gangster epic that spans 60 years, and it stars Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and Joe Pesci. All these guys are in their 70s, and, and Pacino, the oldest, is 79. The Irishman has been gestating through various stages of development for about a decade now, and given its state-of-the-art de-aging technology, it made for one of the most prolonged and complicated post-productions of Scorsese's career. And thus, The Irishman, as a finished product, represents a project to which some of the greatest and most iconic talents in cinema history have decided, at the twilight of their careers, to devote an enormous and invaluable amount of time and effort. And, fittingly, The Irishman is three and a half hours long. One of the convictions I've settled on thanks to Thousand Movie Project is that no movie that might be feasibly classified as light entertainment should under any circumstances run longer than 90 minutes. Martin Scorsese's Irishman isn't light entertainment by any stretch of the word, but still, any movie that's longer than two hours, it better need to be longer than two hours. And yet, despite that reluctance to, to embark on something like so, so huge, Scorsese's got such a track record that I'm not only willing to grant his latest movie three and a half hours of my time, I'm eager to do it. And the same goes for De Niro and Pacino and Pesci. And thus, The Irishman, if it becomes something that I revisit as often as I've revisited Casino, Scorsese's other three-hour mobster movie, then its three-and-a-half-hour runtime will multiply and multiply until it may well be the case that on my deathbed, I, I will look back and realize that I spent days of my life watching Scorsese movies. And that sounds so stark, like so unacceptable. And I've, I've actually heard quite a few gamers give voice to this particular dread. Even though they love playing video games and like they believe in video game culture, they know that they would be mortified if there were some cosmic auditor who approached them on their deathbed to tell them how many hours they spent with a controller in their hand, ambling through Nuketown and waiting to respawn. I think of Harold Bloom in this respect too, how he talks about the importance of rereading, of peeling back a great book's layers slowly over the course of several years, how he talks about like seriously committing yourself to like the excavation of Shakespeare's metaphors, and thereby foregoing the chance to explore other newer books because, because well, Shakespeare, in Bloom's estimation, is simply deserving of that much of our collective time. Now, Harold Bloom is a critic, and it's a critic's job to consume everything and then tell you 
which few somethings out of that everything are worth your time. So the idea is, if this is his full-time job, yeah, trust the guy who reads a fucking thousand pages an hour, who reads widely and snidely and all the fucking time, when he tells you, here, fuck with these books, these are worth your time. Anyway, yeah, so Bloom is saying that we should read and reread and reread Shakespeare until we know all of his masterpieces intimately and, well, fucking, if I could read a thousand pages an hour, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't be such a problem for me to reread all of Shakespeare, Harold, but I don't read that fast. I read like 30 pages an hour, 50 if I've done some drugs. And as much as I want to know these poems and plays as intimately as every other reader would know them, I also don't want to be estranged from the voices of my contemporaries. The, from the books that, you know, they might not be extraordinary, but they reflect something about the, the culture in which I'm living, the world in which I'm living. How many times will I have to rewatch The Irishman in order just to feel like I've grasped its enormous story? At what point does my rewatching of this enormous movie switch from appreciation and study to indulgence? Where is the line between reading it like a work of genius and treating it like a comfort blanket? Norman Mailer said that with every moment of our lives, we're either growing into something greater or receding into something less. Are we morally obliged to be constantly growing, to be constantly trying to grow? Our ability to reason and to converse is the foremost privilege of our species, and I do think that we should feel compelled to explore and dance and dwell for a while in every corner of it, of, of language. And that, we are, and that we are obliged to make use of these eye-opening works of art, the great novels, the great movies, that give us, they give us the tools to better explore and appreciate ourselves and the people around us. So yes, read and read and read the heavy stuff, the challenging stuff, the time-tested, sacred stuff. But, but when can I masturbate, is basically the question. Cormac McCarthy said somewhere in his handful of quick, whispered interviews that sometimes you can have a wildly productive day that involves watching a line of ants march across your windowsill because something about that sight just opens, I don't know, it just it flips a switch in your head and, and it opens a door. I think the suggestion was that you, you don't have to have something to show to prove that you are productive today, that there is something productive in simply existing and enjoying the, the world around you because it was so phenomenally unlikely for you to be here in the first place. I think Gary Vaynerchuk is, is constantly citing that 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 figure i don't know if it's true that like the odds of you being born is one in 14 trillion in talking with my friend rc about his music in 2014 when it seemed like circles was inevitably going to be fucking massive considering all the thematic stuff that he was going to explore in it i kept insisting that an artist's debut should should never be intimidating to a listener you don't make friends by being intimidating and when it comes to length whether in a work of art or a penis length is intimidating a debut artist hasn't delivered enough work yet to have established trust with an audience to assure the audience that they won't feel that their three and a half hours have been wasted. A debut piece of art should be swift and accessible and approachable and friendly. And brevity is how a debut artist demonstrates courtesy and friendliness to their audience. It is the equivalent of saying, if you'll only allow me a moment of your time, I'll make sure it's a good moment. Because most people are willing to risk wasting only that on a new artist. One moment. Well, after five years, Circles is finally done, and it embodies all these different moods and a broad spectrum of his, of his recording abilities, his writing abilities. He released his huge ambitious project over the summer, and now it's about a half hour long. First it was land, dirt in the sand. Dust in the wind, 
but nothing like Kansas. Whole nother world, the birth of the mother. At first she was gray, but then she just burst into color. Burst on the scene, earthquakes and explosions. I'm talking tectonics, the earth is in motion. The surface is solid, but it floats on an ocean. Made of fire and metal, all the iron below us. It was smoking volcanoes. These storms and tornadoes leave you spinning like tops, leave you spinning like dreidels, leave you spinning like records. Stomach keep turning like tables, raining fire and brimstone from over the rainbow. It was looking like hell, but it felt like it's home. Once it started to rain, once the water had formed, when the water had fell, turned the dirt into mud, turned the valleys and rivers, drowned the world in a flood. All alone, lost in space, unaware, the endless chase. Is it ending? Has it begun? Revolutions around the sun. So then there was water. Throughout the 1970s and into the 1980s, Norman Mailer wrote a huge novel called Ancient Evenings that proved to be something of a flop with critics and readers. And he would later say, when he was an old man with the project long behind him, that that book was practically a gift for reviewers, uh, particularly reviewers who had been saying for years that Mailer was no good, that he was overrated. Now, he said, they could point to Ancient Evenings and they could say, you see, he, he worked doggedly for 11 years and he produced a very bad book. Ancient Evenings came out in 1983 and, sure, it hit the bestseller list, and since Mailer was a literary celebrity, it commanded serious attention from reviewers around the country. But the reviews were mixed. They seemed to generally applaud the great talent on display, but to lament that it hadn't been put towards some sort of greater project. And so, after a flurry of literary comment following its release, the world moved on from ancient evenings. Readers and critics drifted toward new things, and Mailer, after putting so much of himself over so many years into this one massive project, he moved on too. Mailer would go on from there to write two more thousand-page books, The Executioner's Song and Harlot's Ghost. The first one found a very large audience, while the other one found its proper audience. Mailer clearly held out hope to the end of his life that someday his decade-in-the-making tome about Ancient Evening would eventually find its belated readership. Norman Mailer died in 2007. Twelve years later, it still doesn't look promising for Ancient Evenings. Harold, I've been living inside this book of yours, The Anatomy of Influence... I miss the old title, The Living Labyrinth, partly because it's so perfect for the way your mind works. All that stuff inside talking to itself. Pardon me, old noble Chris, is it not the way that your mind works also? Well, with much well, less in All of us literary cultural types are labyrinthine in our complexities, aren't we? Well, yes. I dare say that your marvelous body of auditors who will listen to this in some form or another after you have edited it down, I dare say they are labyrinthine in their complexities also. They're, they're sinuosities, you might want to say. So, back to that thousand-page-an-hour guy, Harold Bloom. Bloom, who died in October at the age of 89, said to Chris Lydon in one of his final interviews that he was working on a play of sorts, or something for stage presentation anyway, and it was called Walt Whitman, A Lyrical Pageant, or something like that. And from the way he described it, it sounded like this might be a creative work, Bloom's first creative work, I think, 
or the first creative work that we know of. He, he, he could have a dozen unfinished novels in his drawer that he never showed the world, and it's also not to say that his critical work requires no creativity. But you can imagine what sort of crushing self-consciousness must accompany the first piece of creative work to come from the pen of somebody who has spent his entire career talking publicly about what makes for good creative writing. Harold Bloom, in his career, had humiliated lots of writers, and now it looked like he was going to throw his own talent into the realm of consideration. I think an interesting case of this of, of this same kind of th is the case of Michiko Kakutani, who was previously the head book critic at the New York Times and considered, during her tenure, probably the most influential critical voice in the world of American letters. Kakutani gutted some books, and she could be absolutely visceral when she didn't like something, but she also elevated others into the spotlight, and there are many writers who, who could fairly say that their career was built up by a Kakutani review. Praise. A Kakutani review could be the difference between obscurity and literary stardom. She was prolific and strong and clear with her regular work, but would occasionally write these cringe-inducing, quote-unquote, creative reviews in the voices of fictional characters. Well, here, this is an excerpt from a book review that she wrote in the voice of Brian Griffin, the talking dog from Family Guy. Quote, I might also point out that Moff, the main character of the novel she's reviewing, Moff, who, who is also a dog. Uh, anyways, I might also point out that Moff, again like me, is almost always the sanest, most reasonable voice in the room. I don't know why it's so often left to us dogs to put things into perspective, to see what's obvious or just plain common sense. Why are humans so stupid? Why are they so blind, pig-headed, and impervious? That's about as much as I'm willing to quote, because it's cringy, it's cringy enough to read, let alone perform. She did it kind of often, and when she would do it, people would ridicule her for it in the way that... I mean, yes, the, the, the stuff she was writing in those voices were cringy, but it was kind of clear that a lot of people enjoyed the opportunity to critique a critic. Anyway, in 2017, shortly after retiring from the New York Times in what one person referred to as a buyout... Not sure exactly what that was supposed to mean. Kakutani was slated to release her first book, the debut book by the most formidable book critic of the last 30 years. Which, okay, wait, all right, wait, here's another digression, sorry, but the, but the idea of a notoriously tough book critic suddenly choosing to write a book of her own and thereby surrendering herself to the forks and knives of so many writer critics looking to settle old scores reminds me of this anecdote I heard in a podcast recently, and forgive me, for almost definitely getting some of these facts wrong, but it was about the stand-up comedian Dane Cook, who about 15 years ago enjoyed some explosive popularity, a, a degree of stratospheric popularity that almost invariably proves implosive, too, as people just kind of get tired of your face because it's on TV so often. Well, Dane Cook decided, at the peak of his monumental success, to hire a bunch of friends and relatives to work with him during his world tour. Uh, one of the people he employed was his brother, who was savvy with numbers, and he put his number in charge of handling his money. And he tasked him with, with, with putting that money in the right places, paying taxes, doing whatever needed to be done. And where had Dane Cook's brother been working when he was elevated to this lofty position? He was a corrections officer at a prison, which is not an illustrious job, obviously not the kind of job where you make many friends. And so, as you can imagine, to get this switch from being a guard at a prison to basically becoming... A kind of accountant to a very wealthy person who also loves you, it, it was a huge boon for him. Well, over the next few years, this brother, whom I believe Cook said was later clinically diagnosed as a sociopath, he embezzled almost all of Dane Cook's money. Same thing that happened to Leonard Cohen with, with his manager. So Dane Cook notices the irregularities with his money, he calls the FBI, reports it, his brother gets arrested, and Dane Cook goes on to describe as one of as one of the formative moments in his life the day that he went up and testified against his brother. 
His brother was convicted and handed a very long jail sentence, which he would be serving at the same prison where he'd previously been a sociopathic guard. But I digress. Anyway, back to the Michiko Kakutani thing, the, the former book critic for the New York Times. So it's announced that she's writing a book, and you can almost hear writers across the literary world drawing their swords. But then the book comes out, and it's fine. It's nonfiction, thank God. It's called The Death of Truth, and it explores an argument that um, that the critic, actually, actually, also the critic Camille Paglia has been talking about for like 20 years now, about how the postmodern literary movement of the 1960s and 70s created this kind of alternative truth culture. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a fucking bag of worms. I'm not sure of exactly how Kakutani approaches it. Anyway, my point is, from my perspective, it took a lot of guts for Kakutani to decide that she was going to write a book of her own after she had spent like a 30-year career pruning the good ones from the bad, making enemies in the literary world. Kakutani is famously private, and certainly when she was working at the New York Times, it was almost impossible to find a picture of her on the internet. She never gave interviews. She seemed to never attend public stuff, panels, and, and literary shit. She didn't appear to ever schmooze with the literati. And so it seemed, when she was releasing her book, like she wasn't just throwing her hat into the ring with other authors who, you know, opened themselves up to criticism. It seemed like she was opening up her life for the first time, giving interviews, making public appearances. It was, it was a big deal. But then the book came out, and it was fine. And now it's two years later, and we're on to other things. Kakutani took the leap, threw herself into the risky and revealing new venture, and everything worked out fine, as, I suppose, it sometimes does. There is an essay by Goethe, who was uh, profoundly involved with Shakespeare, and at the same time, I think on a very deep level, um, affronted by Shakespeare. You might say <laughs> he experienced a certain anguish of contamination or even anxiety of influence in regard to Shakespeare. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's a marvelous essay, and it's called Shakespeare und keine Ende, which means, in effect, no end to Shakespeare, no, no way of coming to the end of it. Um, So that was a bit of a maudlin ending. Anyways, but yeah, my special thanks for this. In this episode, I want to say you have a special thanks to Radio Open Source, which is hosted by Chris Lydon. That's where we got some of the clips of Harold Bloom. And also from Theater Talk, which if you're a fan of stage performance, um, you can go to the Theater Talk channel and find some really incisive conversations with writers and actors. And my special thanks, of course, goes out to Speakeasy, who not only lets me use his music for the intro and outro to all of these episodes, but who's kind enough to sort of let me in on every aspect of what he's working on. He lets me read the lyrics beforehand, early drafts. I wish him the best, and I hope that you guys will check out his work. But I also wanted to mention that, like, if you're a regular listener and you catch these episodes as they're produced, then there's a good chance that you're listening to this on or around Christmas Day. Whatever you celebrate, wherever you are, I wanted to sort of sign off before going into the epilogue by saying that when I was in high school and middle school, 
um, I had the privilege of, of having the family computer being set up in my bedroom. Now, obviously, it afforded me the privileges that any newly pubescent person with an inter internet connection might enjoy. But another thing that I get kind of sentimental to remember is that despite being somebody who is pretty good at expressing himself, and I could be a class clown sometimes, and um, I wasn't very good at making deep friendships. Like, I was seldom in a situation where I had friends who were calling me up and, and wanting to hang out. At school, I was fine. Everything was good. I, I was striking up conversation with people. And outside of school, I had a close friend who lived right behind me named Robert, but he always had a crazy schedule and he was hopping from one school to another. It was hard to sort of link up. For the most part, I was by myself, which was fine growing up. I liked it. Um, and one of the things that was great is that the year that I got a debit card with a monthly allowance was also, I think it was $50 a month. That was also the year that Major Hollywood Studios stopped making VHS tapes. So I started buying droves of them off of the internet for like a dollar a piece, all these obscure artsy movies and iconic horror stuff. And having those tapes kept me company. And, and that was good. It was, it was fine. But as the internet was assuming something like the shape that it currently has, um, and as there were suddenly content creators who were putting out videos on a regular basis, and I'm thinking specifically of like Tourette's Guy and Maddox and places like Newgrounds and E-Bombs World, when these people posted stuff, I would stay up late, I would wake up early, I would watch the video or listen to the recording or read the post again and again and again. Each time something popped up from one of these outlets, I felt like I was communing with someone and I would, I would go on message boards and talk with people about it. It sounds weird, but it felt for a long time as though some of my closest friends during those formative years were these internet content creators. And one of the things, like you would talk with people on message boards about this content and and you would forge, forge such bonds, and I think what no one was acknowledging is that the reason we're all here and talking about this is because we're not outside right now. We're not socializing right now. We're all of us in different parts of the world just kind of alone doing our thing. And I'm also remembering what my last Christmas was like, where apart from some family get-togethers, I was alone in my apartment um, all afternoon, alternately taking a nap and staring at my ceiling and preparing for the evening's events. Um, and I had just gotten out of a two-year relationship a month prior, and I was feeling like really terrible and alone. And I remember thinking that it felt that afternoon in bed by myself in the wake of the breakup, waking, waiting for some family get-together, um, felt exactly what I, what I would feel like when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, when after so many consecutive nights online with no new content, just putzing around, reading about movies I couldn't get access to, I would just feel like... Like my world was tiny or like, I, I don't know, it was, it, was, it was a weird alienated vibe. But then when I felt that way, one of these content providers would make something new, I would grab onto it and I wouldn't feel so bad. So anyway, that like the previous, like the, the thing that just wrapped up this episode is kind of maudlin. But my point is that if you're enjoying this during a, a quiet bit of downtime during the holidays, and if you too are feeling kind of bummed about maybe not having people to spend it with, um, people vying for your attention or your touch or whatever it is, I want to say that when I'm when I'm making these episodes, which takes a lot of time and effort, um, I get the pleasure, first of all, of seeing that I've made something, that I sort of conjured this audio file into existence from my imagination and by using software that I barely understand. But but after that, mostly I think of, of you, like personally you as this person sitting by yourself in some downtime and choosing to take me as your company through your jog or your car ride or you're doing the dishes or whatever. And that's, and that's very flattering. And so when I finish one of these episodes, um, I like the idea that I'm communing with you and maybe, and, and the idea that maybe when I make something, it helps to scratch 
your version of that same kind of lonesome itch that I had sometimes when I was a teenager. So if I can get a little Fred Rogers about it, I consider you a bud. Thanks for listening. I appreciate that you're spending some time with me wherever, whenever, whatever time you're listening to this, Halloween, 4th of July, Christmas, Jewish Christmas, whatever. And also knowing the rate at which I end up getting these fucking episodes done, it's probably, you're probably, this is probably debuting on February 23rd and I'm here like, Merry Christmas. Over the past few months, a lot of listeners have been sliding into my DMs on Instagram or emailing me through the website, thousandmovieproject.com, to tell me uh, that something rang their bell or just to contribute to the conversation. And I'm so delighted to hear from all of you guys. So feel free to say hey, whatever. I might not get back to you immediately because I do have two jobs and a podcast to manage and a daily blog. And uh, I'm, I'm writing some long fiction thing at the same time. I'm also spending way too much fucking time at Red Bar, incidentally. If you ever go and get a drink at Red Bar, tell them that you learned of it through this podcast and say that Alex, the guy in flannel who's always writing on that corner stool under the lamp, tell them he sent you and, and, and deserves free drinks for the business. Anyway, happy Christmas. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and to check out our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can always throw some money at Thousand Movie Project on PayPal or Venmo, or you can buy one of our two ebooks, Horny Nuns and The Ballad of Felicio Knightley, which both cost a buck and are both available on Amazon.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.